Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today we are reading Cicero's De Amicita, and I gotta be honest with you, like, I almost cut this reading from the class. Like, when I was sitting there reading through all of these various texts, and, you know, I read, like, this entire Other Selves book cover to cover, um, I read most of the, the early, like, the first half of the, the, um, Philosophy of Erotic Love book, like, I was very thorough in, lo in looking for readings across, you know, all of these various texts and all of these various cultures and all of these various historical moments. Um, and on the one hand, I know Cicero is hugely important. Like, Diamachita is taught and is regarded very much as well and as strongly as, like, Aristotle on the subject of friendship. This is a foundational text for this, the sort of discussion and study of friendship. And yet, like, I can't get through this essay without my eyes glazing over. Um, I just can't. Like, back during my master's, I, I read De Amicita for my comp exams. Like, I, you know, they set a bunch of full professors in front of you and they grill you on questions and, you know, like, w there was a whole list of books that we could read to prepare for the exam, and I read De Cicero's De Amicita because, you know, I wanted to read a little bit of Roman, uh, Roman, like, philosophy and scholarship. I had read it in the past at this point, and, you know, like, I read it, and I couldn't, I could barely get through it, and it was, you know, fine. Like, it's not bad, it's not wrong, it's just kind of really long-winded and unnecessarily disorganized. Um, and I swear, I got to the test and they didn't even ask me a single question on the essay. Like, they they all would have been looking at the paper in front of them that said that I had read it and that they were supposed to grill me on it, and I don't think any of them cared. Um, Damachita is important and kind of frustratingly so. Like... Everybody agrees that it's important, and nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody agrees that it's hugely significant, and nobody wants to actually read it or discuss it. It's weird. Like, and I'm, I'm trying to be 100% honest with you. Maybe there is some massive study of Cicero out there somewhere. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I think this actually ties into sort of the business of how philosophy and academia at large kind of conducts itself. So, I want to start by talking about that, like, the canon, why Cicero is in fact considered so important, even though, like, I don't like him that much, and a lot of people have sort of gotten away from reading him, and he's not nearly as important now as he was in years past, but that's the trick. Um, Cicero is important because so many other writers, so many other philosophers, so many other thinkers are absolutely drawing from Cicero, commenting on Cicero, uh, like sort of weighing in on Cicero. Um, and, you know, some of this has a lot to do with the way that, like, the business of philosophy, the way that we've sort of tabulated the history of philosophy, the way that we value the history of philosophy changes over time. Um, you have to understand that, you know, we've talked about the sort of difference between the Greeks and the Romans. 
um, how, you know, there was this major historical shift, and the Romans themselves were very down on the Greeks, like Cicero himself, like I was joking about last time, makes all these references to that guy who the Oracle of Delphi liked because he refuses to name Socrates. Um, there's a whole bunch of sort of complex relationships here that we need to kind of be aware of. Um, but at the same time, we have to recognize that our culture is guilty of doing something fairly similar. Um, Back in, like, the 17th and 18th centuries, young men, when they were growing up, were treated to what we frequently call the classical education. Um, that is to say, if you were, like, a school kid, you know, being trained by a private tutor or even in, like, early sort of um, upper-class public schools, um, boarding schools, that sort of thing, what you would usually do for your education um, like, your teacher would lay out for you the, like, a grammar on ancient Greek and Latin, and you would be forced to learn ancient Greek and Latin, um, and then you would be reading, you know, ancient Greek and Latin texts all the time. Um, like, every schoolboy in, by the eighth grade, if they were, you know, coming from a fairly upper-class family, um, in the States, in England, and elsewhere in, the, in like the 18th century, would have read Cicero's De Amicitia. They would have like known it by heart, um, largely because it was considered so important. Likewise, all these scholars, you know, after Cicero, throughout the medieval period, throughout the modern period, so like Dante would have read Cicero, um, been very familiar with this essay. Um, Montaigne, like deliberately references Cicero several times in his essay on friendship, and which we'll read later on in the class. Um, like anyone who talks about friendship has Cicero as an important sort of tool in their belt, um, as an, an important reference point, the same way that, you know, people like spin off Bible verses or Shakespeare quotes in order to sound learned or to like give you some kind of aphorism of wisdom. Um, Cicero was considered that. Um, but even Augustine, like, only five, six hundred years after Cicero wrote, is sort of remarking that, you know, he admired Cicero, and he thought that Cicero was really neat, and Cicero kind of woke him up to philosophy. Um, but at the end of the day, Cicero is kind of doing more oratory than philosophy. Um, he's not engaged in sort of picking out the nuances of what friendship is about. Instead, he's kind of doing something similar to what we saw in the symposium. He's delivering an encomium to friendship of the sort that, you know, Plato would be quick to point out, oh, that was just a lie. Like, you think of that, you know, uh, of Glaucon especially, um, or Agathon, sorry, I got my various interlocutors of Socrates confused. Um, Agathon has that whole speech about how love has all the virtues, and love is beautiful, and love is attractive, and love is wise, and love is, you know, humble, and all of these good things, and Socrates is like, dude, that's... You're just saying nice things about love and it doesn't mean anything. Like, Cicero isn't quite doing that. There's enough philosophy here, enough truth here behind what he's talking about to admire. But I think at the end of the day, he's more interested in the rhetorical flourishes. And there are a lot of them here. Like, this is a gorgeous text. It just isn't terribly substantial, if that makes sense. Um, and despite the fact that it isn't terribly substantial, because of its value as a rhetorical text, and because it does offer just enough substance um, to sort of be important in its own right, to really give us a glimpse of the Roman Empire and its view on friends and sort of the significance they had in everyday affairs, um, just writer after writer after writer is going to quote from them, you know, 
like we get Montaigne quoting from it. We get uh, Dante quoting from him. We get Emerson quoting from him. We get even like Lewis to some degree is clearly aware that Cicero exists, and a lot of the problems that Cicero raises are going to be talked about there. Um, but a couple of lectures ago, I mentioned that Cicero is, or that a lot of the essays on friendship that we're going to read are kind of fuzzy, like not terribly philosophically rigorous or terribly specific, and instead just kind of recounting vague sort of experiences. Um, Aristotle, for his part, is trying not to do that. He, like, does occasionally indulge in this sort of weird fuzzy logic, but most of the time, like, Aristotle at the very least is out there saying, you know, here are what people say about friendship, we're going to reject this, we're going to reject this, we're going to accept this, we're going to divide up friendship into these three categories, we're going to talk about the, the strengths and weaknesses of each. Like, Aristotle is at least doing his homework. He's trying to turn this into something that is, you know, delineable, something rational, something that you can cut with a knife. Um, Cicero is not. And I think most of the writers we're going to read are going to take Cicero as their starting point, which means we're going to get a lot of these kind of fuzzy, fluffy sort of essays, um, which is frustrating to me. And maybe it's something wrong with me. Like, again, people do occasionally read Cicero and think it's really cool. People do like this essay. People do think it's really important. Um, and maybe, you know, in violation of my usual axiom where I'm trying to see the good in literally every text that I read, like any time somebody says, that was a good book, I pick it up hoping to find whatever it is that they said. And I just, I struggle with this one. Like, maybe that's on me. Maybe, you know, my hyper-rational, super-scientific mind, that's bullshit, by the way, um, is somehow just turned off by this. But... I don't know. Like, I don't want to color your take on it all the same. Like, if this really resonated with you, pay no attention to me. Like, maybe you can, you know, teach me exactly what it is that was so cool about what Cicero was saying here. Um, like I said, I think that there's a lot of cool stuff here. I think it's just, he didn't need 40 pages to say it, is kind of what I get at. Like, he repeats himself fairly frequently. He... You know, not all of his transitions seem to make sense. He'll, like, move from idea to idea within a paragraph and then kind of get lost from what he was originally saying. It's tough for me to follow, um, and I imagine that the same is true for you. Like, you know, I'm a trained philosopher, and my eyes are glazing over reading this philosophy text. I would imagine that for you, who are not, who is not nearly as familiar with philosophy, it was probably even worse. Um, and you were probably, you know, constantly sliding off the page. But then again, I don't know. Like, maybe the his oratorical or rhetorical style is, you know, something that you appreciate more. Um, so anyway, this might prove to be a shorter class just because I can't find enough substance in here to really, like, bite into and, and get a, a good grip on. Um, but at the same time, you know, if it isn't, like it may actually take more time to sort of draw out what Cicero is doing here. Um, so let's let's take a look. Like, I'm not going to go through it systematically because I don't think that's the appropriate way to handle this text, but I do want to touch on a lot of Cicero's kind of major points and a lot of the interesting ideas that first he is going to bring up and he is going to be kind of the first to bring up, um, but that we're also going to see echoed a lot in texts down the road. These ideas about friendship that are in fact kind of perennial, um, that do sort of uh, persist through the ages, as well as the things that are kind of distinctly Roman. 
So first off, um, we talked quite a bit last time about sort of the historical circumstances surrounding this text that Cicero has written. We talked about the Romans' tendency to hero worship, and we see Cicero constantly making reference to great Roman citizens, great Roman friends, even like villains in Roman history like Coriolanus, who, you know, was originally a general fighting for Rome, and then was very upset when one of his bills did not get across in the Senate, and therefore, like, did a hissy fit, joined up with Rome's enemies, and then spent the rest of his life attacking Rome. Like, stories like this, Cicero is very well versed in, and he's very deliberately making reference to them. Um, like we talked about, you know, there are a couple lines there where Cicero is really down on sort of vague, ambiguous and especially Greek philosophy, um, and he emphasizes instead, uh, this is page 86, our task is to look at conditions which actually exist in human life, not at those that men dream about or pray for. Um, so this is the first full paragraph, like about halfway through. Again, all of his good lines are kind of buried. Um, but Cicero very deliberately distances himself from Greek philosophy. Um, part of that is probably because, again, the Romans and the Greeks were kind of bitter rivals in their own way, and the Romans are sort of super self-conscious about their lack of cultural accomplishments when compared to the Greeks. Um, but also this does reflect just a truly Roman sort of pragmatic perspective on the world. You know, Cicero doesn't care about ideals. Cicero is not looking for some ideal form of friendship. Cicero is not talking about what could be or what might be or what everyone should want to be. He's talking about what is. He's talking about people who lived, their friendships, friendships that are, you know, historical, significant, in many cases, friendships that either he was personally acquainted with, like he, Cicero, was personally acquainted with, or he, Gaius Laelius, his sort of, you know, like, adopted character that he's speaking through, uh, would have been familiar with. At any rate, Cicero is not interested in fictions. He is interested in facts. He is interested in the friendships that did exist, um, and friendships that shaped Rome, for that matter. Um... So again, like, he's distancing himself with Greek, from Greek philosophy, he, but at the same time, like, he can't successfully totally break free. There will be multiple times in this text that he's going to, like, throw shade at the Greeks and be like, well, some of those Greeks say this, this, or this, but obviously that's nonsense. Um, and it seems sometimes that he has a kind of complicated relationship with Aristotle. Um, and it's entirely possible that Cicero didn't read Aristotle. Like, again, because of that sort of animus between the Greeks and the Romans, in all likelihood Cicero was fairly well-versed, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he read, like, what we consider important. Especially because Aristotle's notes were kind of different. Like, Cicero in all likelihood read Plato. Um, Plato's dialogues likely circulated in Rome and were, were readily available. I'm not sure if the same was true about Aristotle, especially this recent after Aristotle's career. Instead, it seems that Cicero is referring to other, uh, either like pre-Socratic philosophers or philosophers contemporaneous with Plato, or you know, relatively recent philosophers like the Stoics, like the Epicureans. Um, I'm not sure if he would have had uh, the Nicomachean Ethics, you know, sitting at, on his bedside table in scroll form um, while he was writing this, although he probably was making reference to other books. Um, again, it, like, he seems to be flirting with it, and he certainly 
seems to be engaging with a lot of the same questions that Aristotle comes to. He even comes to basically the same central conclusion, namely that virtue is an essential component of every good friendship. Um, but he also deviates from Aristotle fairly significantly. Like, unlike Aristotle, who is sort of questioning this, you know, how, why is it that good men need friends, and then coming to the conclusion that it's so they can bestow favors on them. So, you know, it, it's an excess of the, the benefit that they get as a virtuous person. Cicero, by contrast, pretty clearly states, pretty close to the outset, that friendship is good in for itself. Um, that it's just worth having all by itself. Like, you don't need to explain why do you need friends. And Cicero is even fairly suspicious of the, of the people who do sort of see friendship as a means to an end. Like, all those flatterers who are looking for, you know, important people to be their friends so they can, like, pester them for favors and stuff. Um, where Aristotle is fairly tolerant of that behavior, you know, Friendships of convenience or friendships of utility are a valid form of friendship, even if they are inferior to friendships of virtue. Cicero is like, nope, that's rotten behavior and we won't have it. And that's not true friendship and you should totally get rid of those people because they're the worst. Um, which may very well be sort of an offshoot of the Roman culture versus the Greek. Like, we talked when we were talking about Aristotle about how Greek culture, you know, you only had one person in town who you could probably talk to about, you know, getting new shoes or about, you know, making pottery for your household. Like, in all likelihood, the estate would be pretty well equipped with people that would make most of the things that you needed, but in all likelihood, if you had a fairly specialized thing that you needed, like if you needed to buy a boat, for example, there was probably one person in town who did this, and you needed to talk to that person, which meant that you needed to have a rapport with this person, which means, for Aristotle's purposes, you needed to be friends with this person. In Rome, things are much more urbanized. Uh, like, Cicero especially is speaking from Rome itself, like he's writing as a Roman citizen, likely in Rome, and at this point Rome is considerably larger than Athens ever was. Um, and rather than having these big sprawling estates where you had tons of servants who sort of like kept the estate as self-sufficient as possible, um, in Rome this was not possible. Like the Seven Hills and the, the city between them was seriously urbanized. Um, you would have had like outlying farms growing food and bringing them into a central marketplace where people would buy them rather than people producing food on your own estate. Um, there wasn't room for you to have your own cobbler and your own, um, like, like manufacturer or your own potter or your own blacksmith. Um, in all likelihood, Cicero lived in a fairly, you know, decent mansion in, within the, the Roman purview. He may very well have grown his own crops or had, like, people to do that for him, but in all likelihood, he didn't. Um, if he needed stuff, he sent somebody into town to get that for him, which means he wouldn't have interacted with them. Um, instead, his social life, his sort of, you know, day-to-day -day activities would have been entirely consumed by hanging out with other Roman nobles or being on the Senate floor, um, basically engaging in politics. Um, politics was a full-time occupation in Rome in a way that it was kind of really only a part-time occupation in Greece. Um, yes, you needed your lord on a Greek estate to represent you in the demos, uh, but that was, you know, not what they were spending most of their day doing. 
By contrast, um, Cicero and most Roman citizens, like most Roman you know, nobles, would have either been on the floor of the Senate themselves or had a representative who was responsible for going there on their behalf, and therefore you probably spent a good bit of your time either talking to your representative, like making sure that he had your best interests in mind, or, you know, talking to other people who you were representing, making sure you had their best interests in mind. Um, so, again, like, you're not interacting with the town blacksmith, because there's a dozen blacksmiths in Rome, and, you know, the person who you send your servant to talk to could vary. Like, you don't necessarily have a lasting relationship. If anyone does, it's your servant who does. Um, so as a consequence, you don't make friends with people of a lower caste than you. And this is kind of obvious the way Cicero talks about it, you know. Aristotle, too, had a sort of classist vibe going on in the Nicomachean Ethics, where he was like, well, there are these vulgar people, and they do all these stupid things, and we do not, you know, behave like them. Uh, better to take the nobler route. Cicero is, if anything, even more classist. It's just he's so insulated by his classism that if it doesn't seem to come across as strongly. You know, Aristotle recognized you needed to have a relationship with the guy who did your work for you. Cicero doesn't think that's the case at all. You don't have to have any relationship with that guy. He's doing a job. You're paying him to do it. That's all you need to, to know about the situation. And that is probably more typical of our own culture. Like, you would not you know, call the, the person who serves you coffee at Starbucks your friend, unless you have been going there for a very long time, or if you have made inroads on being that person's friend, or if you're being friendly to them. Um, like, that's a totally professional relationship. I pay for that service. I expect decent treatment, but not necessarily friendship or affectionate treatment. Um, that's just how our society, how our economic structure works. And in that sense, it is much more like Rome than it was like Greece. Um, so we need to keep that in mind on the one hand. Um, but I have already wandered way off the track, you know, in very Ciceronian fashion. Um, one of the other things that I do want to emphasize here, though, is, you know, as much as Roman, Roman culture is very different from Greek culture, and as a consequence, we should expect, you know, Roman philosophy to be very different from Greek philosophy. Um, at the same token, I'm not sure Cicero is interested in having a rigorous philosophical conversation. Again, he's very critical of the Greeks who do, like who have nothing better to do than just walk around and, you know, debate the fine points of abstractions all day. Um, Cicero instead frames his whole letter, frames this whole discussion, um, as though he's just passing on the practical, eminently practical wisdom of somebody who would know. Um, i.e. Gaius Laelius, who was friends with Scipio Africanus, and of course both Scipio Africanus and Gaius Laelius are famous in Roman circles for being wise and good friends. Um, therefore, it would make sense that the younger generation would be asking them for help, asking them for insights as to how friendship worked. Um, but again, since Gaius Laelius is not a philosopher, he's not engaging in this systematically. He's not doing what Aristotle is doing by enumerating all of the questions that are brought up and then systematically sort of disposing of them one by one. Um, in contrast, Cicero is more interested in, in it rhetorically. Why is friendship good? Let me sing its praises. When is friendship bad? Let me talk about those circumstances. Cicero is more thorough than many of his contemporaries, but he is not as thorough as many of the Greeks, because again, he has very different interests in mind. Um, 
But I think the main thing that I was actually getting on when I was talking about classical education before I got totally sidetracked, like, five different times, um, I wanted to talk about why Cicero is significant, why he, like, why he is, was studied for so frequently, why he remains so important in some ways. Um, and again, like, this comes to this fairly weird question in modern scholarship, by which I mean not, like, contemporary 20th century scholarship, but modern scholarship in the sense of, like, everything from the Renaissance to, you know, Nietzsche and the postmoderns. Um, Again, because classical education was so important, largely because of the Renaissance and largely because of the sort of uh, various changes in European culture that took place afterwards, um, the Roman Empire became the model for a successful society. Um, and this is interesting. Um, like, probably the best example that I can give, just because, you know, we are the beneficiaries slash recipients slash victims um, of this particular kind of thinking, um, are the Founding Fathers. You know, I mentioned before that they were very immersed in classical education. They had all read Cicero. They would all have known, you know, th this text backward and forward. They would have all studied this extensively. Um, but additionally, like, any, you know, amount of reading that you do of the original Founding Fathers, like if you read the Federalist Papers, or even just the Declaration of Independence, if you read any of the correspondence between, like, Adams and Jefferson or Washington and so on, um, you will find them frequently making reference to specifically Roman history. Like, all over the place. It's just, it's part of what they understood about the world. Like, all of these sort of um, amateur statesmen suddenly becoming the founders of this new constitution and government, they were very much founding it with Roman ideals in mind. Um, and very deliberately so, as well. Like, the design of our government, the idea that it is a republic and not a straight democracy, that, you know, rather than, like, everybody just casting votes on every, you know, law that comes up, and it's like, every day there's a new referendum, um, instead, we have representatives who do that for us, much like the Roman Republic. Um, and this is tricksy. Uh, like, remember that I talked about in the last lecture that the Romans had a very high opinion of themselves, and they had this sort of political, jingoistic kind of view of their own identity? Like, we were better when we were a republic, even though the empire probably prospered more under the emperors. Or, you know, we were better when we were all tough and militaristic, even though they were definitely richer when they had sort of left that kind of militarism behind, and at the end of the day it was their expansionism that kind of screwed them over, and their attempts to make the, make the nation greater and greater that ultimately proved too unwieldy to handle. Um, the Romans did not fully understand their success, is kind of what I was trying to get at there. Um, and the founders, I'm not sure, fully appreciated that. Like, the founders, I suspect, spent a lot of time buying into the sort of jingoistic smokescreens that we see from people like Cicero, from people like, you know, Augustus and his diatribes against Mark Antony. Um, on the one hand, I think that the, the founders were very cautious about certain elements of Roman history. Like, they clearly had a, a terrible fear of t tyranny. Um, but that led them to some fairly interesting decisions. Like, 
you know, you will find all throughout all of the founders' correspondence, anytime that they start disagreeing with each other vehemently, they immediately start calling each other tyrants. Like, you know, or, or if they disagree with some important element of political philosophy, like if Jefferson is, you know, trying to argue against Washingtonian federalism, he'll say something along the lines of, this will just breed tyrants and we're just asking for someone to take over the entire government. Um, like, they're terrified of Julius Caesar, is what it comes down to. Like, Caesar presented himself as a man of the people, and then very much just took over the place, and because the people were behind him, there wasn't much that the aristocrats could do except assassinate him, which just made things worse. Um, that's why there's that whole separation of powers, three branches of government, like... The, the whole checks and balances system, like, all of that is built into our government to discourage somebody from becoming a popular ruler who takes over the place and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. Um, and P.S., if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, that looks really familiar based on recent history, yes, yes, it does. Um, many of those checks and balances, many of those separation of powers have degenerated over time, especially because the two-party system has kind of taken over the checks and balances system. But that's a whole other conversation altogether, and not one for this classroom. Um, what I instead want to stress here is we're reading Cicero because lots of people think that Cicero is important, and I think a lot of the reason why those people think that Cicero is important may in fact be kind of mistaken. Um, like, this is what I meant to talk about when I started in on my diatribe about the canon. Um, canon is a really fuzzy sorts of, sort of concept. Um, and what canon constitutes is even fuzzier. Um, probably the best example that I can give you, like, that you're familiar with, at least, is the literary canon, because you've spent, at this point, likely four years of, of uh, your life in English classes at high school and been forced to read these so-called, quote, important books um, because your teachers told them that they were important. Um, philosophy kind of works the same way. Like, just as, you know, English professors and literature professors worldwide sort of disagree about what books are important, so philosophers frequently disagree about what books are important. Um, essentially, what I'm doing in this class today, what I am doing when I started on this diatribe before I got totally sidetracked talking about Cicero, because he is interesting enough to have the conversation, is should Cicero be considered an important book? And the reason why I bring this up, especially in this class, like as much as this may seem sort of tangential to our purposes about love and friendship, is because it actually is a really important question for historiography. Um, like we talked about with Foucault, where Foucault is sort of cherry-picking these texts that he thinks are significant to understanding the, quote, repressive hypothesis, so we also have to kind of interrogate the canon from time to time. Um, and, again, the literary canon is a fairly obvious example here. Like, everyone agrees that Shakespeare is super important. Why? Because he was an incredibly skilled writer who wrote about really important things and presented them in this really interesting way. Um, like, as a result, every year that you were in high school, you probably had to read some damn Shakespeare play. Whether it was Romeo and Juliet as a freshman or Hamlet as a senior, you just could not get away from this guy no matter how much you hated him. Um, and the same is probably true about most of the books that you read there. Like, if you had a class on American literature, you probably read some Nathaniel Hawthorne, and you probably read some Herman Melville, and you probably read, I don't know, maybe The Great Gatsby. Like, because that's widely considered to be a capital-I important book. Um, 
But, and I should stress this, this is not set in stone. The canon as it exists only exists because a whole bunch of English professors and writers and scholars and so on, they all sit together and they basically build their curricula. Like they do what I did at the beginning of the semester. They sit there with a blank piece of paper and a giant stack of books on their, on their left hand side or whatever. And they go through them and they're like, this is really important and I want to include it in my class. This is really important, but it doesn't fit with what I'm trying to do. And around and around they go. After going through all these books, they make some decisions. Okay, this is going in, this is staying out. This is going in, this is staying out. This is going in, this is staying out. This is really weird, nobody thinks that it's important, but I think it's really important for what I'm doing, and so I'm including it. This book is really important, everybody loves it, everybody knows that it's important, but it's not really what I'm going for, and therefore I'm kicking it out. Um, these are the decisions that shape the canon. As petty as that might sound. Um, and perhaps the single most controversial text in the current discussion of canon is, and you've probably read it at this point, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Like, I cannot stress enough how fraught this is. Like, I'm in the middle of trying to write this gigantic essay on the subject of, you know, Joseph Conrad and the canon, so I'm kind of preoccupied with it if it's not obvious. Um, Conrad's Heart of Darkness is a really well-written book about a really important subject, namely imperialism and colonialism. Um, it is very tightly wound and it is very easy to follow and it's great to teach to high school students because it's, you know, it's action-packed and exciting and it's got all this cool stuff happening. It's also freaking racist. Like, not even a little bit. Like, not even, hmm, I guess he's a little bit racist. No, like, he's comparing human evil to black people. Like, this is bad. This is not acceptable. And a lot of, you know, especially black people have sort of stood up and said, uh, this is racist bullshit, please stop teaching this in classrooms. And the conversation keeps happening. Should we take this book out, even though it is significant and important and all of these other things, even though we've been teaching it for years and there are all these written things about it and you know people have considered this super important for over a century, or should we remove it because it does in fact have a lot of problems according to contemporary standards of you know what acceptable morality, ex acceptable representation looks like. Um, this is how the canon changes. These conversations are happening. And the only thing that gets you into the canon is because a whole bunch of scholarly eggheads agree that your book is important. So the only thing that gets you out of the canon is a bunch of scholarly eggheads agreeing that your book is no longer important. Um, and Heart of Darkness is very much at the sort of center of this storm, largely because it is, on the one hand, really good by most Western conventions of what a good book should look like and what a good book should talk about and what a good book should be, but also at the same time, it's extremely problematic. It has a lot of things in it that people don't think are moral to teach, um, don't think people should actually be overexposed to, hence the complexity. Um, now, obviously, Cicero's Dis Amicita is not nearly as objectionable or controversial as uh, Heart of Darkness, but I do want to bring this up because I want to stress that our view of De Amicita, our view of Cicero, changes over time. Like, one of the goals in this class is we're talking about historiography. How do we understand these various texts in their historical moment, in their historical purview? But there's layers to this, um, because that perspective changes over time. Like, we just talked about last week at this point, um, 
the, the, the Francis Burton's translation of the Kama Sutra. And I cautioned everybody, guys, Burton obviously has an agenda here. He is obviously translating with certain ideas in mind. Namely, he wants it to be as sexy as possible to satisfy all those horny Victorians so he can sell lots of books and make lots of money and be very successful. That's something you need to keep in mind when you read Burton's translation. But keep in mind that, like, Cicero would have been important to various scholars at various times and would not have been important to other scholars at other times. I am saying this because I think Cicero's star is falling. Um, I think that despite the fact that there are all these important writers like Montaigne, like Emerson, like Dante, like Augustine, like even uh, Aquinas to some degree, who think that Cicero was really important and Cicero really does inform their philosophy, at the end of the day, I think Cicero is less going to be read as this book that like everybody needs to read because it's really important about friendship, and more just in the sort of sidelined B-list category where you need to read it in order to properly understand what Augustine and Aquinas and Montaigne um, and you know Rousseau are talking about when they write their essays on friendship. Um, but I also want to stress what that means. Like, how does that change our perspective in the contemporary world of what friendship is and how we should be talking about it? Um, part of the reason that Cicero is falling out of favor is because the Romans are kind of falling out of favor, I think. Um, whereas in the 18th century, the founders were all about Rome. They were convinced that the Romans had all the secrets that they needed for understanding political philosophy. That, like, you could learn more about how governments work by reading Cicero or by reading Marcus Aurelius or by reading, you know, the various letters of various emperors than you could anywhere else. These days, we don't agree. Um, classics departments are growing more focused on the Greeks than the Romans, and we tend to think that the Greeks had better ideas than the Romans these days. We are more apt to read Plato and Aristotle in a philosophy class than we are to read, say, Cicero and Marcus Aurelius, um, no matter what Marcus Aurelius may have to say. Um, and you can see that just in the way that these textbooks are constituted. Like, in our Philosophy of Erotic Love book, we have literally three readings from various Roman writers, namely the letter on marriage and fidelity from Theon, which we were talking about last time, that little tiny passage of from the art of love by Ovid, which again is sort of contextualized by being very different from the rest of what Rome is teaching, and then Augustine, which is honestly less Roman and more Christian, which we'll talk about later because we are in fact reading that later. Likewise in other selves, we don't get a ton of Seneca. We get a couple of letters. We don't get a ton of Marcus Aurelius, even though he wrote on friendship, even though he was considered super important by the founders of the Constitution, by other classicists. Instead, we get this chunk of Cicero, which is still sort of the shadow of importance, despite everybody's reservations, despite my thinking that I might just get rid of it altogether, no matter how much it informs all the other writers in this textbook. Um, that's it. Like, we increasingly think of the Romans not as though they were the foundation of Western civilization and the government that would last a thousand years. Instead, we think of the Romans as a bunch of pompous dick fascists. Um, we associate them more with, like I said, Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin than we do with, you know, John Adams and George Washington, Montesquieu and Voltaire. Um, there's a change happening all around us in the way that scholarship looks at this. And I should stress, that's a change in opinion. 
And you can fight back against that. Like, that's why I said at the outset I don't want to color your opinion about Cicero. And if you really like Cicero, by all means say so. Defend it. Like, it's occasionally advantageous for me to include texts in my class that I don't like because it gives my students an opportunity to talk back to me. Like, to say, you know, you're missing this really important thing that Cicero is doing, or, you know, here's this really cool idea that I can't find anywhere else except in Cicero, or maybe you like the Roman attitude. I mean, there are people who have said that. Like, I had a friend in college who, when we were studying the Greeks and the Romans, and he was taking his occasional philosophy class or his English classes, he would come to me and be like, no, the Romans knew what they were on about. They knew how to run a functional government. The Greeks can't, you know, run a government to save their souls. The Athenian democracy falls apart in, like, 200 years. But the Romans keep going. The Romans, through their propaganda machine, through their, you know, indoctrination, through their careful critique of morality, through their rejection of abstract philosophy, they endured. They succeeded in a way the Greeks did not. Like, they won. They conquered the Greeks. Therefore, doesn't that make them better? And while I might question my friend's morality or my friend's motives or anything, I can't argue with the results. The Romans succeeded in a way that the Greeks did not. The Romans endured in a way that the Greeks did not. And if we are basing our governments on the failed Greek society rather than the considerably less failed Roman society, that might be a problem with consequences down the road. We are very much immersed in our own culture's perspective, our own culture's values, our own culture's ideals. Roman values are very much opposed to a lot of ours. Especially because we identify Rome with fascism and with, like, tyranny. Um, the Romans probably did not. Although, it's hard to say, because, as is always the case, history is written by the victors. And the books that got published tended to be the ones that agreed with the dominant philosophy and not the ones that argued against it. You know, Cicero is read by all Roman citizens for hundreds of years to come. Ovid's Art of Love, however he gets ex exiled over it. Um, and we only have, like, a couple of extant manuscripts. It's significantly more difficult to get a hold of. Um, that's what I want to stress here. Like, as much as, yes, I am frustrated by Cicero and I am venting my frustration and I want to express that frustration, I also want to turn it into an opportunity for you to think about this. It's more complicated than that. The Romans offer a perspective that is different out of sync with a lot of the other perspectives in this book, Cicero, as much as he is adopted by lots of other scholars, as much as his view of friendship is sort of adopted and changed by other scholars, we don't sort of gravitate to it as neatly. But that may be because of our culture, not something wrong with Cicero. What's more, I want to stress what Cicero is talking about here as far as friendship is concerned, how he describes friendship, as much as a lot of it will in fact resonate with us and, and sound familiar, like echo our own ideas about friends, a lot of it's also going to be very unfamiliar. At the very least because Cicero seems to put a way higher premium on friendship than, you know, we do. But that's the key. Is Cicero right and we are wrong? Or are we right and Cicero is wrong? Or are neither of us right and we're both wrong? Um, is it possible that we can learn something specifically because Cicero disagrees with our perspective? Cicero, you know, doesn't align with us. Yes, I want there to be more substance, and I will criticize Cicero for not being terribly substantial, for often being fluffy or just uh, rhetoric. 
Um, but at the same time, what he has to say may also be undervalued in my mind. So as we read this text and as we read other texts in the future, keep this in mind. Um, the reason, like, don't just accept what I'm giving you is kind of what I'm saying here. Um, as much as I think that I've created a very comprehensive curriculum for our love and friendship class, as much as I have agonized and poured over the various readings, what to include and what not to include, my voice is not the sole voice on the matter. Um, and if we are going to be studying a historiography in this class, then at some level we have to sort of do the metacognitive work of questioning your professor. Um, honestly, I'd rather you question your professor. I want you to do this all the time. Like, any time that you take a philosophy class or an English class, I want you to not just be aware of and try and keep track of, like, what are you reading for every given assignment? Like, what is this philosopher trying to say? I want you to be asking the question to yourself, why did my professor pick this? Why does this seem to be important? Why do they think that it's important? In part because it'll help you to correct some of your biases, like, any good student worth their salt will start to recognize that certain certain professors have certain tics. They have certain behaviors. They have certain texts that they prefer. Um, to sort of continue my example of the English professor and, ironically, Heart of Darkness as well, um, there was a famous English professor at the school where I went to when I was an undergrad who always, always taught Heart of Darkness. Like, he had a class one semester that was literally called Poe. Like Edgar Allan Poe, The Raven, The Telltale Heart, Cask of Amontillado, Pit in the Pendulum, Fall of the House of Usher, that Poe. Like, he had a class that was literally entitled Poe, and every one of my friends who took that class were very excited to, like, let's read some Poe. Let's talk about, you know, all of these scary texts. Let's talk about the, you know, starting of the short story, and, you know, let's talk about his role in American culture, and let's talk about, like, the development of, you know, genres like horror or like science fiction or like the detective story, since Poe also pioneered that. Like, let's talk about all these ideas. And then, like, they apparently got to this class and the dude taught Heart of Darkness and no Poe. Like, they sat there for a semester listening to this guy lecture on Heart of Darkness, lecturing on, you know, other important texts that had nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe, and there was no required Poe reading for the entire class. And it frustrated the living shit out of my, out of my friends and fellow, like, English students. Because they wanted to read Poe, and they didn't get to read Poe. Um, this professor was considered highly eccentric, and yes, this behavior was kind of, you know, funny and silly in its own right. Um, but I, it's sort of the big picture, you know, writ large, um, kind of like comical extreme of something that essentially all professors do. Um, like the philosophy professor that I was closest to when I was in my undergrad absolutely loved Buddhism and Nietzsche and would absolutely try and shoehorn Nietzsche and Buddhism into literally every conversation, every class that he had, um, to the point that I was really excited to take classes that sort of got outside of that usual focus, that usual tendency. Um, so when he offered his class on Chinese philosophy, I took it in a moment because I figured we could successfully escape Nietzsche for a semester, um, if not Buddha. Um, and we did, which was nice. Uh, but it also helped that he actually had some help teaching that class from like an actual Chinese philosophy student who very w was very helpful for that class. Um, likewise, if you hang around in my classes, assuming that Ramapo lets me teach him 
teach any more of them, um, you will find that I am biased towards certain scholars. Um, I will constantly teach the Tao Te Ching if given an opportunity, or complain about it, like I did last week, um, when I can't. Or I will, you know, constantly sort of gravitate back to certain modern thinkers, like Descartes and Hume, if given the opportunity. Um, when we read Romanticism, I have somehow managed to shoehorn freaking Goethe into the, into the syllabus, because I think that he's really representative of what Romantic philosophy was all about, even though he is kind of not a Romantic and kind of has this whole other thing going on, but I know Goethe well, and as a consequence, that's the guy who I point to when it comes to talking about Romanticism. Um, likewise, I've shoehorned Dante's, you know, Divine Comedy into the curriculum, even though it doesn't really belong here, because I think it's important, and because I teach it elsewhere, and because I'm very comfortable with it as a text, and as this important, like, sea-change text in the way that love is understood. Um, I have managed to keep Aquinas. Like, as much as I was grumpy about Cicero, um, I, you know, managed to keep Aquinas, and he is also kind of difficult to get through and, and pretty, you know, esoteric and strange about friendship in his own right. These are my biases, and I'm fairly well aware of them, to the point that I do occasionally correct them, like, you know, not doing the Tao Te Ching in our Eastern reading, and ultimately, like, cutting out half of the Aquinas reading in favor of Cicero, because I suspect I might have overcorrected. Um, if you take more classes with me, you will see me making the same sort of moves, making the same sort of biases, tendencies. Um, my mythology class, you know, he has no business being there, but I somehow managed to shoehorn Tolkien into the discussion, because... A lot of what I understand about mythology comes through the lens of the Lord of the Rings and, and Tolkien's other writings about mythology. I know this. This is how I roll. But your other professors have the same thing going on. They will tend towards certain readings. They will prefer certain philosophical schools over another. Be aware of that. Um, because that's it's happening on the small scale in one or the other classroom, but it's also happening on the big scale. Our culture favors Plato over Cicero, Aristotle over Aurelius. Um, we favor the Greeks over the Romans in large part, especially in philosophy classrooms. Um, now, again, sometimes this varies from group to group. Like, maybe if you take classes with a classical department, you'll find that they actually favor the Romans over the Greeks. Um, or maybe if you take a, so a bunch of sociology classes here or at another school, you'll find that they are really interested in Marx and not as interested in other writers. Or perhaps you'll take psychology classes and find that you all of your professors are Jungians and they all hate Freud. Like, this is pretty typical. Um, this is how departments and professors and disciplines work. They fall in and out of favor. You know, like, if we had been taking a philosophy class 50 years ago, in all likelihood, nobody would have touched Nietzsche with a 10-foot pole, but Nietzsche has gotten sort of more popular, more acceptable in, in recent memory. The French school, the contemporary French school, is really on about Nietzsche, and as a consequence, Nietzsche is in vogue again. These things happen. Um, so Cicero may have fallen out of favor, all the more reason why we should try and keep him in the curriculum if we can, um, because we should talk about him. We should talk about his significance. We should look at ourselves and say, why are we so down on Cicero? And ask the question, is it us or is it him? But enough navel-gazing. Let's actually talk about, again, the points that Cicero brings up, um, you know, insofar as we can find them. First off, again, I should stress, uh, like, 
we're not going to do this systematically. I am just going to sort of pick and choose his main points here, largely because Cicero does kind of jump around quite a bit and repeat himself from time to time. Um, so let's talk about some of those main points, some of which I have, in fact, brought up and discussed before, because, again, I am apparently very disorganized today. Uh, we apologize for that. First off, I want to look at the one, like, actual legitimate definition he gives us of friendship. Um, this is on page... 87, he like prefaces it and does the whole thing. The second full paragraph here, um, well, we'll start with the first full paragraph. We can best comprehend the power of friendship by considering the fact that nature has established social contact between countless numbers of men, yet friendship is so concentrated and restricted a thing that all the true affection in the world is shared by no more than a handful of individuals. Notice, this is the sort of thing that I was talking about where I said that Cicero is probably even more classist than Aristotle. He's just quieter and subtler about it because of his insularity. Um, notice what he's saying here. Like, there is social contact between everybody, but friendship is reserved for a handful of individuals. It is just for the few. Friends can only exist among the nobles. And there seems to be a pretty direct equation between nobility and virtue in Cicero's mind, which isn't totally weird. The Greeks would have said the same thing. Aristotle definitely says the same thing. It's just that Cicero doesn't seem to, like, give a shit about anyone who isn't noble, um, which, again, is fairly typically Roman. Like, they have very limited interaction with the other classes, um, even though the Greeks would have. But notice what he concludes. Now, friendship is just this and nothing else. That is, like, classic definition introduction. Complete sympathy in all matters of importance, plus goodwill and affection. And I am inclined to think that with the exception of wisdom, the gods have given nothing finer to men than this. I want to take apart this definition, because, again, it is one of the few times that Cicero is concretely and philosophically discussing this issue, and as a consequence, it will inform everything else that he's doing. He's going to repeat these ideas often. He's going to rely on these ideas. He's assuming them throughout. It's just rare that he puts it together in so concise a form. First off, friendship is complete sympathy in all matters of importance. This is a huge idea in Cicero. Um, it keeps coming up frequently. Namely, that virtue can exist between people who disagree, but friendship cannot. Um, like, people will land on the opposite sides of political issues. That's just the way that Roman society and Roman politics works. Some people think that this guy should be in charge. Some people think that that guy should be in charge. Some people think that their friend... You know, Scipio Africanus should lead the charge into Africa, whereas some people think that Scipio is overrated, um, and they have their own friends to sort of protect and, and uh, argue for. This kind of partiality is happening in Roman politics all the time. And as much as you might call it nepotism, and it totally is, um, it really was just like, this is still a small enough community, a small enough town, that the highest ranking folks are still coming from the same families, are still sort of, you know, in each other's affairs. Um, just as Aristotle was stressing that, like, you know, there are friendships of advantage and friendships of utility and friendships of pleasure, and you will tend to treat your friends better than others, and that's a good thing, the Romans would totally 100% agree, if anything, they're just making it even more obvious. Um, so if you, you know, owe your friend a good favor and think that they would be fit for an office and you're fighting tooth and nail to get them there, that's considered an honorable thing to do. You should do that. That's totally what friends are all about. The Romans are all about this. Nobody would fault you for this. 
Likewise, if there are people who also are decent human beings, who are also virtuous, who are also good and knowledgeable and wise, and they disagree with you because they've got their own friend that they're trying to get into office, that's their business, these things happen. So what Cicero is stressing here is that in order to be friends, you've got to be on the same side of the issues. Um, maybe you were arguing against the plebeian rights, cool. Or maybe you were arguing for them, cool. Either way, you're probably not going to be able to be friends with somebody on the other side because things are going to get really heated. Um, you are not going to be able to help each other. You are not going to be able to like call each other for favors. Um, there's no way that you can like get on the same side to get something done. So again... Uh, complete sympathy in all matters of importance. And notice the exaggerated language here. Complete sympathy. Um, Cicero does not admit of the possibility of anything less than complete sympathy. Because if it's anything less than complete sympathy, it will necessarily come up and make a rift in your friendship. Um, and I want to sort of contrast this especially against our contemporary culture. Um, when we make friends in our contemporary culture, it's usually in sort of like pockets, in smaller subgroups, um, like based on your interests, based on your activities, based on what you do with your time, that's usually how we make friends. So like I have friends who I hang out with because I like to play magic with them. Yes, I am that dork. Um, or I have friends who I hang out with because we like work on a podcast together and we like to talk about video games or other things. And I have friends who I talk about my writing projects with. And I have friends who I'm friends with because we're all scholars and we all have a lot of similar interests and similar experiences as far as like teaching philosophy or teaching other subjects. Um, I have friends who I'm connected to through the church and I have friends who I'm connected to through my wife. Like this is fairly normal. And in my day-to-day -day life, I don't expect this complete sympathy that Cicero is talking about here. I fully expect that my friends who I have at church don't want to do the same things as the friends who I play magic with or the friends who I play video games with. Like, they're just not interested in those things, so we don't have that in common. We are not in complete agreement there. Likewise, I don't expect my friends who I play video games with to necessarily share my opinions about Christianity. And in fact, I've had a fair number of mostly mutually profitable conversations on the subject where one person who is like an atheist or, you know, who like is uh, following another faith or another branch of the faith you know, wants to talk to me about my perspective on Christianity or wants to sort of pick my brain and we'll push back and forth against each other. That's all fine. But notice that for Cicero, it wouldn't be. For Cicero, that wouldn't be friendship. Like, by Cicero's definition, I am not friends with any of these people um, in this true and complete sympathy sense. Which, again, remember, no self-diagnosis here. Cicero is biased. Cicero is basing his experience, or basing what he says on his experience. Cicero doesn't have a wide variety of different communities to interact with. Like, the fact of the matter is, in day-to-day -day life, we are probably in close proximity to, or at the very least could reach out to, literally thousands of people. We do not have a limited social circle. Like, between Facebook and Twitter and other social media, as well as just the way that people are just living on top of each other um, in these compact urban environments or suburban or whatever, like, we could very easily, you know, go to 
drive 20 minutes, like get in the car, drive 20 minutes to some game store or, you know, some coffee shop or some park that we've never been to before, meet a hundred people that we've never ever had any interactions with, and strike up conversations, find new, new connections and interests. And on the one hand, that leads us to sort of two kind of contradictory conclusions. On the one hand, we can afford to pick and choose whatever our friends are. Like, we do not have to carefully cultivate our relationships. If somebody ticks us off, we can just chuck them out and find a new friend in, like, half an hour. Um, it's not that hard. Like, as long as we are basing our friendships on interests, those friendships can be fairly disposable. Which is actually an important part of our lives. Like, if one of us picks up and goes to college six hours away, it's fairly easy for us to fall into a new community. We can find new friends. In fact, we can very deliberately get rid of our old friends because we don't want to sort of be in the same community to be, you know, quote, stagnant in a way. Um, like, I remember when I graduated from high school, I was more than thrilled to, like, get out of my old community and find new people who I shared other things in common with. Um, there's a sort of weirdness to that. Like, it is kind of bullshit to just sort of try and remake yourself and pretend like the old you doesn't exist, but it is also liberating in a way. Um, and people can do this all the time, either because their job like tells them, now go somewhere else, or they get a job somewhere else, and now they're suddenly moving four hours, six hours, 12 hours away, um, or just because they want to. Like, they just want to pick up and go and do something different with their lives, you know, just shake up their, their situation. Um, Cicero would not have had this, this luxury. Um, and as a consequence, like, he would always interact with the same handful of people all of his life. Um, it's not nearly as sort of, uh, it's not nearly as, as insular as the Greek communities were. Like, again, you know, you probably were born, lived, and died in the same Greek city-state. Um, whereas in Rome, there are multiple other communities within your orbit. Um, but at the same time, the same rules do kind of apply. If you are, you know, if you grew up with the noble children of, like, the household next door or another noble family that are your rivals in the Senate, it is to your advantage to cultivate decent relationships with these people because you can't leave them. They will always be there. Your rivals in the Senate will always be your rivals in the Senate, and your friends in the Senate will always be your friends in the Senate. And therefore, stay close to your friends and keep cordial with your rivals and everything will be great. Um, by contrast, since we can just throw out our friends and get new ones, since humans are essentially more disposable in this day and age, since we can very much just uproot our lives at a moment's notice, we frequently don't have that deep connection to our friends. You know, oftentimes the people who we consider our closest friends are not the ones who grew up with us. Um, if anything, we don't like the fact that those friends know every dark secret there is about us. You know, like, if in fact we are trying to live down that one time in second grade that we, like, peed all over the slide, then absolutely we want to like pick up and move or we want to change change locations like we still suspect that that stigma is hanging over us even through middle school and high school um whether or not that's true or not is another matter entirely though um so on the one hand we are very apt to sort of dispose of our friends and get new ones because it is way easier to do that in this day and age but on the other hand i think cicero has something really sort of striking to say about this like if in fact we followed cicero's 
sort of suggestions here, and one of his main suggestions is that we need to be very careful in cultivating our friendships. We need to be very selective. Um, like, frequently in the latter parts of this text, he emphasizes that, you know, like getting yourself into a bad friendship, sort of committing yourself to a person who isn't worth committing to, someone who is vicious, or someone who is just interested in flattering you, someone who is sycophantic, someone who's trying to take advantage of you, you need to be very careful of those people, and you need to very specifically avoid those people. You need to instead favor, you know, people who are virtuous, people who will stick by you through thick and through thin. Um, if, in fact, we are surrounded by people who could potentially be friends and therefore can't afford to throw out friends and get new ones, you would think we would also be able to afford being selective. That we could, you know, not base our friendships just on, you know, do we have similar interests at this particular moment in time? You know, do we like going to the bar after work? Do we, you know, both like going to Rutgers games? Like, whatever the case may be. If, in fact, it's the case that we're surrounded by all these people all the time and therefore can afford to pick whatever friends we want, in theory, we could, you know, only choose friends who are really close to us, both in our sort of perspective, like, in search of our virtue and with similar interests as well. Um, we don't have to choose. And I think Cicero would be kind of quick to point that out to us. Like, if you are in fact surrounded by all these people and that you don't have to be near any of them, like, you can seek out somebody and spend time looking for a really close friend and, you know, live your life with that person, um, why wouldn't you? Why would you settle for less? Um, why would you hang out with people who you share an interest with but who also annoy the living shit out of you? Like, why would you put up with that? Um... And I think it's tricky. Like, I think part of this, too, has to do with our own sense of inadequacy. Like, Cicero, too, is working in a time where there are very clearly defined social st structures. Um, like, if you are part of the nobility, then you are widely considered part of the nobility. Everybody agrees that you are virtuous. Everybody agrees that you are noble. There aren't these sorts of obvious, like disparities in wealth or significance, power, honor, you know, there will come those times, like Cicero even mentions, you know, sometimes people get, like, really great accomplishments, and now, you know, the circumstances have changed, um, but at the same time, it's not a deal-breaker for Cicero the way that it was for Aristotle. Like, Aristotle notices, if there's this huge jump, it'll probably be bad for your friendship, because whoever's now sitting in the inferior spot is going to feel kind of resentful about it. Um, for Cicero, that's not a big deal. As long as, you know, you, like, elevate your friends as much as possible what, when you do advance, everything's fine. Like, everybody wins. Um, but in our society, as much as we are supposedly classless, like, yes, we recognize that there's, like, rich people and middle-class people and poor people, we are really, really, really particular about our classes. Like, you know, you watch any high school movie and you get that whole, like elaborate social structure scheme where it's like here are the jocks and here are the popular kids and here are the student council people and here are the band geeks and here are and every single one of them has like this weird standing in the social hierarchy and they're all different and like nobody associates with anybody outside of their core group like it is incredibly striated um like we have metrics and social hierarchies and complicated relationships and sort of like internal inferiority superiority checks on like everything you're not allowed to hang out with people who are significantly more attractive 
than you, or you were not allowed to hang out with people who were significantly more nerdy than you, or you were not allowed to hang out with people who were like significantly more, you know, buff, who work out significantly harder than you do. Um, and I suspect that part of that is, you know, on us personally. Like, we sit there and we're like, man, that guy's really jacked, and I feel really self-conscious about it, so I don't want to hang out with that person anymore. Like, part of that is certainly on us. Again, friends are disposable. We can sort of cycle them in and out as we want. But at the same time, I think, if anything, there's something really warped about our society's sort of lip service to freedom while also kind of failing to live up to that. Um, that we do very much feel these social pressures that really shouldn't exist, like, at all. Like, in theory, we should all be getting along. There's no really concrete reason why a person with more wealth should not be able to hang out with someone with significantly less wealth, or why a person who is, you know, significantly more attractive should hang out with somebody who is who uh, is significantly less. Like, there's no reason that these people can't get along. There's nothing in our society that dictates it. But at the same time, like, socially, we all very much insist on that. Um, like, consider just how awkward it is to ask somebody out in this day and age. Like, for Cicero in his time, you know, if you were a suitable match, if a woman and a man were, you know, of similar social standing, like, there wouldn't be any problem whatsoever. Like, the woman wouldn't even have to agree in this case, honestly, as gross as that may sound. Um, but there wouldn't have been any pressure on it. There wouldn't have been any, like, failure if in fact you were rejected like yes you aimed at your station you did or did not hit it it was completely irrelevant like it's it says nothing about you as a person probably was just disadvantageous for the match but in our culture like we get this whole thing where it's like is this person too attractive for me am i aiming above my station or am i be aiming below my station you know you get this whole sort of like paralysis of trying to understand all of the social niceties involved, trying to figure out exactly what, like, delimiting factors are appropriate or not appropriate. Like, is it okay to date somebody at work? Is it okay to date somebody who I'm already close to? Is it okay somebody who's, who uh, has dated one of my friends? Is it okay to date somebody who I've dated before? Like, all of these questions get sort of posed into these, these discussions. We obsess about them. We are absolutely obsessed with trying to figure out our station, in part because nobody is going to come out and say, uh, you are actually a 7 out of 10 on the wealth and attractiveness scale, and therefore should not be hanging out with anyone who is an 8 or a 6. Um, and on the one hand, this sounds really gross. Like, this is how incels talk. They have this whole rating system, and it's very carefully calibrated and calculated. Um, but at the same time, like, that's how the Romans worked. Like, as gross as that sounds to us, I think the Romans had it more comfortably because they had it figured out, because it was down to a science, because it was very obvious that, you know, these sorts of people can pair, these sorts of people cannot, that's all there is to it. I think we, as a culture, are looking for social justification, looking for perspective, looking for, like, some authoritative figure to give us a numerical rating and just, like, box us in so we don't have to worry about overstepping the bounds of that box. But instead, with that box completely not described, with, you know, there being no limits, no rules, we feel like we're constantly trying to draw it for ourselves based on sort of second-guessing what other people are thinking about us. And that'll absolutely mess you up. Like, no wonder we're all just crazy and stuff. Um, I suspect that I've avoided a lot of that because I'm just 
completely socially oblivious and I have no idea what these complex social responsibilities are 80% of the time and the rest of the time I don't give a shit because I'm a white dude and I can afford not to care which, you know, hooray privilege but there it is Like I wish that you could all not care what people think of you but there it is um, I've been oblivious I am not aware that of where I stand in the social hierarchy but at the same time I know that these social hierarchies exist because so many people talk about them because so many people are so upset by them because so many people are so frustrated by them I understand the theory even if I don't feel it very clearly in practice um, and I think that Cicero is attentive to this, but he's attentive to it in his own space. And as a result, he has a higher standard because he doesn't have to worry about those things. He says complete sympathy because he can afford to say complete sympathy. He's not worried about the other fiddly details. He's not worried about attractiveness quotients or numerical ratings or you know specific wealth disparities. Like, noble people are noble people, you want to hang out with another noble person, that's fine. They can be superior to you. They can be inferior to you. It doesn't matter as long as everybody performs their responsibilities in a way that is decent and okay, which is effectively the same as ours. Again, you know, you can be friends with whoever you want. In theory, I suspect that we just get in our own way as far as that's concerned. Cicero does not. Um, Cicero doesn't have these hang-ups. His culture doesn't have these hang-ups. Um, so I think he's actually more free to be friends because his culture is more clear about how exactly friendships are supposed to work, um, unlike ours. But let's move on. Um, the other two components of this definition, uh, we have complete sympathy in all matters of importance, which again, like is really important to Cicero, is really important to what he's talking about here, very much needs to happen in order to not sort of get in each other's way as far as political aspirations, plus goodwill and affection. Um, and this is a little weird, too. Like, these are both terms that we saw in Aristotle as well, um, although obviously we're speaking Latin here, not Greek, and therefore they're not exactly the same words. Uh, but the ideas are very similar. Like, we like each other is basically what it comes down to here. We have complete agreement in all matters of importance, and we like each other. Like, obviously, you know, if somebody agrees with you in all matters of importance, if you are on the same side politically or personally or otherwise, and yet you can't stand this person, then obviously you're not going to be friends. Um, but at the same time, like, notice that this connects in Cicero to his ideas about virtue. Like, frequently over the course of uh, De Amicita, he mentions that, like, virtuous people will be attracted to each other by nature. Um, they will just naturally gravitate towards one another. Their natural virtues will seek each other out, and they will become friends very easily. Um, as much as he is suggesting that, like, you've got to like each other, he's also stressing that virtue is an important part of this. And he will emphasize all over this text that virtue is the glue that keeps friends together. Um, if, in fact, one friend becomes vicious, that friendship is likely going to expire. If, in fact, one friend, you know, sort of matures when another friend does not, then in all likelihood that friendship will die, gradually, hopefully, and not like in some elaborate reality TV show-esque, you know, breakdown. But all the same, it will eventually go its course. You know, the people that you hung out with in high school may very well not be the people you hang out with, you know, 20 years from now, simply because your interests have changed, your priorities have changed, you've, your life has moved in different directions. Um, Cicero recognizes this, but again, it's connected to virtue. 
Um, just like it was in Aristotle, remember. Like, as much as Cicero hates them Greeks, he absolutely is, you know, on par with what Aristotle is talking about here. He is absolutely stressing the same things that Aristotle does. We should be seeking out people of similar virtue, people who agree with us in important matters like politics, like religion, like whatever is significant to the Romans at the time, but at the same time we should also seek out people of virtue. If you have both, that's ideal friend material. That's what you should be looking for. Um, and obviously we make friends pretty independently of virtue all the same, although I think that in our culture we do at the same time have a sort of track record for friends, and we do sort of track each other's virtue. There are things that friends will do to us that will disqualify them for future friendship. And as much as our culture very much does place a high premium on forgiveness, like, yes, your friend's screwed up, but now you're going to forgive them and you're going to understand this and your friend's going to try harder to move forward in the future, like, as much as that is also an important part of our culture, in general, our culture has no tolerance for someone who repeatedly screws you over um, for any number of reasons. Like, it just doesn't. Um, in the act of forgiveness is implied the act of change on the person being forgiven, um, which is probably very much informed by Christianity, which we'll talk about in the next couple of lectures, um, but is also just sort of the way that we interact with these things. Like, there are limits to how much you are willing to give your friend, to how much you're willing to sort of indulge your friendship, to how much you're willing to sort of accept the disparity in treatment. If a friend treats you like shit, you should not be in that friendship, is what our culture essentially says. Um, and then you get into discussions of like abusive relationships and all that complexity, which, again, we don't have a whole heck of a lot of opportunity to talk about. Now, when it comes to what virtue actually is, Cicero is really ambiguous here. Like, Aristotle could speak comfortably about virtue as being a component of friendship, uh, because he had already very clearly defined virtue all over the place in the Nicomachean Ethics. Uh, like, again, we didn't read it, but book one, two, and three are all about the virtues, and he is very explicit, he is very descriptive, he, like, gives us great detail on each one of them in later books, like four. Um, it's, he's very careful about all this, and Cicero is not. He kind of assumes a virtue, like, you know, virtue, we all know what virtue is, right? Um... He does, in fact, try to define it a little while later, like in the very next paragraph. He says, but now let us define virtue in terms of our own way of life and in words that we can understand. And he goes on throwing more shade at the Greeks. Let us not measure it by the degree to which we can speak of it in grandiose terms as some professional philosophers do. Let us count as good men those who are commonly so considered. Men like Paulus, Cato, Galus, Scipio, Philus... So Cicero, as usual, rather than giving us like an elaborate, careful definition in the style of Aristotle, where he's using these grandiose terms, as he calls it, instead gives us examples. It's, you know, Roman hero worship all over again. And obviously this is kind of a problem because, you know, most of us don't know who Paulus, Cato, Galus, Scipio, and Philus are. Like Scipio we talked about, that was, you know, Scipio Africanus, who was really cool and really a good general and stuff and presumably was a good friend although you know his acts of friendship are not terribly known to us the way that they would have been to the romans or even to the classically educated um we know a little bit about cato because 
Cicero has talked about him quite a bit as being this incredibly wise person, and we even get a couple of like famous Cato aphorisms here. But again, like Cicero invites us to compare, to understand virtue in terms of examples, and then provides examples that we really can't understand or, or connect to. Like chances are, writing in his own time, he would have written these examples and people would have been like, oh yeah, I know, you know, Phylus, I know Galus. They were absolutely important figures of the last hundred years, and maybe I even knew this person personally, or my father did or something. So obviously, yes, that was a really good man, and yes, he did very virtuous things, and yes, he helped Rome and he helped his friends and you know he was just a great dude but again we don't have a lot to work with here like as much as Cicero seems to think that it's super clear when he says hey look at these guys they're all virtuous right we all agree that they're virtuous cool case closed like be like those dudes um, but at the same time you know it's complicated like let's take Scipio for example you know, history, like, Cicero remembers him as being this incredibly upstanding general, this incredibly upstanding man. Obviously, like, he is the very subject of Gaius Laelius's discussion of friendship. And Gaius Laelius, you know, Cicero, via Gaius Laelius, keeps telling us that Cicero was the superior in their relationship. That Gaius Laelius wishes that it was Scipio giving them this discussion because Gaius Laelius' own words will fail where Scipio loved to talk about friendship all the time and had so much more wisdom to offer, but alas, he is dead now and we can't really like get at whatever it was that he was saying. That's tricksy, though. Like, yes, Scipio was virtuous. He absolutely served Rome. He did great things for Rome. He conquered Carthage. That was huge. He won the Second Punic War, saved them from potential destruction, like, destroyed their enemies, shook hands with Hannibal, the whole thing. Um, but there are two things that Scipio did that everyone kind of questions, at least today. The first is the Battle of Utica, which I touched on in the last lecture. Apparently, like, the Carthaginian army was camped out um, on, like, at the top of the field of battle, and Scipio snuck up on them by night and started, like, systematically slaughtering all of the encampment. This would not be considered virtue by most parties. Um, certainly not by Cicero and all of his stoic virtue and all of his, you know, this is how good war is conducted. Like, Scipio didn't do that. That was a, that was a cheap shot. Don't attack people at night while they're resting. Like, that's, that's shitty. Um, and scholars, even at the time, disagreed about whether Scipio was right to do this or wrong. Like, the people who thought that he was, you know, doing the right things, fighting for Rome, saving the, the empire, you know, they're very quick to say, you know, Scipio was adventurous, he was bold, he, he did what he needed to do. Whereas others, especially, you know, Carthaginian historians, are very quick to be like, that guy was an asshole, and he totally attacked us unfairly, and that was a dick move, and cowardly, and, and wrong. So, you know, as much as Cicero is like, hey, use Scipio, he's the perfect example of virtue, you know, at least in our contemporary circles, knowing these stories, knowing the other side of these stories, we might be like, are you sure? Like, is that really the guy who we're supposed to be pointing to here? Um, likewise, the other act that the Romans were actually kind of really grumpy about is he didn't sack Carthage. Like, he beat Hannibal, and he defeated his army, and they routed, and, you know, he basically like went into Carthage and said okay here's the deal I will not kill you and in exchange here are my terms I expect you to surrender I expect you to surrender all the swag you know I expect you to like swear fealty to me or whatever 
and then did not sack the place, did not raise it to the ground. Like, apparently the Romans were screaming bloody murder about this. Like, the Republic was like, why didn't you take advantage of it? Why didn't you just blow them off the face of the earth? Why didn't you turn Carthage into a freaking parking lot while you had the chance? And Scipio's like, man, that's not how I roll. So, again, like, what I want to stress here, and again, I am kind of criticizing Cicero. Sorry, folks. Um, but I don't think... People are good role models when it comes to talking about virtue. Like, as much as Cicero was like, I'm not interested in this, you know, highfalutin Greek virtue. Let's talk about real people doing real virtue in real time. Like, that's good, and I respect that decision, and yes, we should keep these things grounded. But people also suck. Consistently. Um, I have a lot of suspicion about anyone who is held up as this perfect paragon of virtue, this perfect role model. And I think our culture is generally on board with this. Like, remember a couple years ago when all when that, like, Mr. Rogers documentary launched and everybody was, like, beside themselves and people, like, went to the movies and just wept for, like, an hour straight because this was actually, like, a legitimately good person who did legitimately good things for legitimately good reasons? Um, notice that our response to that was, that is so rare. It does not happen like this very often. And it is sort of significant that the guy was, you know, not some huge elder statesman or general or important political figure. He was just a guy who did puppet shows on TV. Like, and that was enough for us. That was virtue shining brightly enough for us to all sort of lose our shit over it. Um, by contrast, we're also having a discussion in our culture about should we still have statues of, you know... Confederate generals like Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson, much less, you know, and, and that it even extends to, like, should we have statues of George Washington, who owned slaves, or Thomas Jefferson, who was kind of shitty to his slaves? Like, should we be memorializing these supposedly great men, these supposedly virtuous people, now that our cultural values of what constitutes virtue has shifted? Um, as much as I am sympathetic to Cicero's efforts to try and find concrete examples of what virtue looks like in everyday life, rather than defaulting to the grandiose concepts and theories of philosophers who don't, you know, who don't seem to be grounded or, or who don't seem to base their conclusions on, you know, actual light lived experience, I am also really suspicious of hallowing people, of raising them up beyond their, their sort of station. Again, I've described the, the Romans' relationship to their forebears as hero worship. And I think there's something really dangerous about that. I think there's something really dangerous about sanding all the rough edges off of some major historical or political figure and turning them into this, you know, perfect example of human virtue. Um, I actually wrote about this at some length in another essay that I took on. So again, we're in territory that I've walked before and probably just on hang-ups that I'm frequently hung up on. Um, but at the same time, I think that there's something really important about this. You know, another sort of comparison that can be made between Roman culture and 20th century fascism is that 20th, fasc 20th century fascism was almost always about these cults of personalities. Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, these were men who could do no wrong, who were held up to the people as these perfect exam exemplars of what the German ideal or the Russian ideal or the communist ideal or the Italian ideal was supposed to represent. And as a result, these dudes got carte blanche to do whatever horrible, heinous crap they wanted. 
And that's not good. That sucks. As much as it is, in fact, useful for political purposes, as much as it, like people gravitate towards some random dude who, you know, seems to be perfectly flawless, it is really dangerous in practice. It is probably better that these dudes are dead, the, the ones that Cicero were talking about, like Scipio, Cato, um, even Gaius Laelius, all of these are, are long dead at this point. Like, maybe not long dead, but they are very much dead. Like, Cicero feels comfortable using their voices specifically because they, you know, cannot speak themselves. Um, but even then, you know, you worship a person and you will end up worshiping their faults as well as their, their uh, virtues, as well as their accomplishments. Um, so I caution this. Um, so the two fundamental things that we're saying here are friendship requires agreement and it requires virtue. It requires this affection that springs from virtue. Um, and true friendship is, you know, participated only between two people who are virtuous, can only exist between virtuous men. Now the last thing that I want to talk about is the law. Um, Cicero brings up this law of friendship on page 95 when he says, um, we must not ask wrongful things nor do them if we are asked to. Um, and he sort of reiterates it again on page 96 in the, the second full paragraph down. Well then, let this be passed as our first law of friendship. P.S. He doesn't have any other laws, so we'll call this just the law of friendship. That we ask of our friends what is honorable and do what is honorable for the sake of our friends. This is the other really important idea that I want to draw out of this text, in part because it is so distinctly Roman, and in part because it is something that a lot of people are going to reiterate later on in their discussion about how friendship is supposed to work. Specifically, they want to talk about this relationship between friendship and politics. And this was a thing in Aristotle, you'll remember, like Aristotle even talked about how there are certain political structures that seem to encourage certain friendships, and there are certain political structures that seem to discourage certain friendships because it is not advantageous to the polit political structure in mind. Cicero is, if anything, even more interested in this subject. He gives us many examples of vicious tyrants and traitors to the Roman cause who try and reach out to and contract their friends to help them. Again, like, this is going to become an even bigger deal after Cicero. Like, once the, the imperial line is established, and there are all these sorts of infightings and conflicts and political squabbles and assassinations, and the Praetorian Guard is killing people, and people are killing the Praetorian Guard. Like, it's this whole giant freaking mess. Um, and it very much becomes a matter of, like, who are you friends with? If you are friends with somebody powerful, you could theoretically either take out the current emperor or make yourself emperor or try and protect yourself from being assassinated in various ways. Cicero is very conscious of this, and he is very careful about this. Again, he solves it rather elegantly, like, namely, you know, since, you, since your friendships are based on virtue, um, you will not specifically go for like vicious behavior but it is important too to notice that again that definition of virtue is dependent on the great roman heroes which means virtue by definition serves the roman state that's what cicero is kind of suggesting here and i want to poke at this because, again, it's a really important idea. It's something that's going to come up again and again in our discussion of friendships. Because, again, strong friendships could theoretically topple entire governments. Could, 
theoretically topple or usher in new regimes. Um, it's a thing. Like, it's a thing today. You know, you think of these, like, major power structures, like, either corrupt pop political structures like the Tammany Hall ring in, in New York City um, in, like, the early part of the 20th century and the late part of the 19th century, or you think of, like, how there seem to be political dynasties, like the Kennedys on the left or the Bushes on the right. You know, obviously these relationships mean contacts, and contacts means influence, and influence means power. Um, so, in a sense, we have not moved that far away from Rome. It's still very much all about who you know, and if you know the right people, then those people will help you to get into power, and you will help them stay in power as well. Um, all one hand washes the other, so to speak. Um, but Cicero is very careful to say that friendship has limits. Um, he characterizes them fairly fairly frequently throughout this text. Like, he, he discusses them here where he's talking about this law of friendship. Uh, he discusses them again when he's talking about sort of choosing friends carefully. Um, he talks about them again on page 100 where he says, our task now is to determine what limits, what boundaries, so to speak, should be set to friendship. First, that we should feel towards our friends as exactly as we do towards ourselves. Second, that our affection and kindness towards our friends should find an exact and precise balance, although he ultimately rejects all of these. Um, in the end, as much as he talks about these limits to decide what limits there are, the only conclusion he comes to is on page 101 at the very bottom of the page. In my opinion, then, there are the, there are the, these are the limits that we must place on friendship. First, that the character of friends be without blemish. Second, that they share with each other without reservation all their concerns, their plans, and their aims. I.e., friendship is about virtue, and friendship is about complete agreement. So we're just, like, reversing the definition from before, essentially. Where we were talking about goodwill and affection, presumably springing from virtue, now we are talking about virtue straight out. And where we were talking about complete agreement, well, now we're just talking about complete agreement again. So the definition remains the same. Cicero hasn't wandered far from his original starting point. Um, since friends are virtuous, they will not overthrow the state, because overthrowing the state would be an act of viciousness. Cicero never entertains the possibility that the state could be wrong, that government could be corrupt, that friends need to bolster one another when the state is unfairly turned against them. Um, and we actually have a fairly robust sense of this. Like, there's all those sort of hackneyed axioms about, like, a true friend is is not the one who bails you out of prison. A true friend is the one who is standing next to you in prison saying, well, that was lots of fun. Like... As much as this is a kind of silly, sort of low-key, uh, like, attitude to have in comparison to Cicero suggesting that, like, Coriolanus, if he had had friends, would have overthrown all of Rome! Like, obviously you're not overthrowing shit when you're sitting in a prison cell after, you know, getting really drunk one night and doing something stupid. Um, but at the same time, notice that friendship in our culture tends to be considered more valuable than lawful behavior in certain cases. We generally assume that there are so many laws on the books that some of them can be comfortably transgressed without being some kind of moral demerit to our behavior, and that therefore good friends transcend that. Um, I think our culture, rather than being the, you know, are we in prison together, is would you bury a body for me? That's the way that I usually see it expressed on the internet these days. Um, and a, a true friend is like, as long as you provide me a shovel. Like, as long as I don't get, have to get my hands too dirty. Like, come on, just be, be decent about it. Um, 
Like, this is the limit here. Like, even murder, although obviously we're not being seriously about it, can be transgressed for the sake of friendship. Um, this is something I find interesting. And I don't have a lot of conclusions about it. I'm certainly not going to come to the conclusion that Cicero does where it's like, you know, all friendship is subordinate to lawfulness um, and virtue, i.e. behaving in the right way towards the state. Um, though I do think that there is something to be said about this. Um, if we sort of disconnect the definition of virtue from this sort of being a good citizen in Rome kind of behavior, if we disconnect it from these role models that Cicero is quick to hold up but not very quick to interrogate, um, I think that there is something there in the same way that Aristotle was emphasizing that friendship should depend on virtue. I think that it's an interesting question in short, like what Cicero is poking at here, this idea that how far are you willing to go for your friends? You know, what kind of bad behavior are you willing to undertake for the sake of your friends? Like, these are interesting questions. It does sort of draw these interesting discussions out of our, our cultural consciousness about, like, what are the priorities that we place on friendship versus our priorities on, like, personal accomplishment or on lawful behavior or just simple morality. Um, I think that these are important conversations to have, and I think that our culture doesn't have clear-cut answers about these things. Like, as much as we may joke about, yes, I would bury a body for you, we also kind of generally don't. Like, we're not even willing to, you know, do something we don't want to do for the sake of our friends. Like, historically, most of my friends, if I ask them, hey, can you come over this weekend, they'll be like, I have pre-existing plans and I'm not willing to drop them. Um, or, for that matter, you know, they will specifically hedge, I don't know what I'm doing that week, and I'm going to basically, like, hold open my calendar to see if something better comes up. Whereas the kind of friendship that Cicero is describing, like, this is a no question, yes, whatever I was doing that day no longer matters. Like, I will, you know, go to the wall for you, man. Like, that's the kind of relationship that's being discussed here. Um, that's the kind of friendship that I think on the one hand we should in fact interrogate, like, is this in fact what we want from our lives? Has our culture changed in a way radically enough that like those friendships are either not possible or not plausible? Um, and for that matter, we should definitely turn around the other way and ask, why aren't we willing to do those things? Like, what is our value on friendship? Why don't we have clear-cut answers to these questions? Why are we saying one thing and doing something completely different? Is that an indication that we just are associating with the wrong friends? Or is this an indication that, you know, we just don't hold friendship to such a high priority? And Or is this an indication that, yes, we are willing to do those things, but only in certain circumstances, and therefore most things that friends ask of us aren't important enough to really worry ourselves about? Like, this is complicated. And as much as I think Cicero is kind of fuzzy and having trouble getting at the sort of issues here, he really does get at this. Um, and this is the reason why I ultimately, at the end of the day, included him. More than my, you know, let's talk about somebody who I don't care for so much, more than the let's talk about the historical significance and how the views on Cicero have changed over time, more than any of that, this is what sticks with me about this text every time I read it. Cicero is trying to discuss how, what is the role that friends play in our lives? What is the responsibility to them? And he ultimately struggles to come to an answer. 
On the one hand, he's like, friendship is the highest virtue of all. It is the light in our lives. Rhetorical flourishes left and right. Like, it is good for its own sake. We should pursue it for its own sake. It is the highest virtue that Cicero seems to understand and, and talk about. But it's always subordinate to the state. And that's weird. Like, Cicero can't reconcile that, that tension, I think. Um, and it's a tension in our own lives as well, as much as it looks different, as much as we talk about it differently. Um, so think about this. As we talk about other friendship texts, when we talk about friendship in Aquinas, or when we talk about friendship in Bacon and Montaigne in the humanistic uh, time period, like, keep this in mind. Where do friends fall in our list of priorities? How much do we actually value them? both as a culture now and how much did that culture then value them as well. Because as much as Cicero is singing the praises of friendship, he is subordinating it to the state, but only the state. That is the only thing that gets in the way of friends. Literally every other accomplishment, like he literally and explicitly subordinates money, personal gain, personal power, personal glory to friendship, saying that we are willing to give those up for a good friend, which we might not be willing to say the same. But at the same time, Cicero is very quick to say, but we still have to serve Rome. Why? Why is that the, the deciding factor? Is it because this is morality in Cicero's mind? It certainly seems to be. Or is he just saying this to you know keep the censors off his back? That's entirely possible as well. Um, it's complicated. And it's something complicated for us as well. So think on this. We will come back to it. Um, in the meantime, for next class, we're going to talk about the New Testament. And, oh boy, that's going to be just a huge discussion in and of itself, and we will not have nearly the sort of space and time that we did with this lecture. Um, so read the, the excerpts that I've got and come prepared to talk about it. Like, as much as I do have certain goals and sort of objectives that I want to talk about, as much as there's some certain clear-cut things that I want to discuss, um, I do also want to open this up, because this is going to be the one chance we get to discuss Christianity, like, as Christianity, before other philosophers sort of take it in other directions. Um, so I want to talk about the religion, how it's understood today, how that reflects on what it was actually doing in the past, how much of what was happening in the past is, in fact, you know, leading directly to what's going on today, and how much of what is going on today is a corruption or a mistranslation or a misunderstanding or just involved in cultural historical factors that we're not going to get the chance to discuss normally. Let's dissect this. Let's make sure we're all on the same page and we understand what Christianity is all about by the time that we're done with the next class. So if you have questions, if you have, you know, if you've been getting your internet, your information from bad internet sources, let's correct that. Because there's a lot of bullshit out there about what Christianity is about, both from atheists trying to discredit Christians and Christians who just don't understand the book that they're reading or have been sort of corrupted by other kinds of thinking and stuff. Let's clear the air. Let's get this straight because we're going to be talking about Christianity a lot in the coming weeks. Um, I look forward to it. So talk to you then.